It's always days that I can't be on my phone when the news goes fucking nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Did it go nuts today? Well, like, Tucker Carlson got fired. Much lesser news, Don Lemon got fired. Mm-hmm. The, uh, we're not going to They're replacing to... each other, right? They're just, like, switching networks and going... That's right. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... I mean, we're not going to get a chance to talk about it because it just happened, but the Teamsters, you know, unionized the first Amazon drivers in the country. And yeah. And, like, all the other stuff we're going to talk about today that I'm not going to reference and thus spoil. I was going to oh, say, uh, we did one of the things we are going to include, but, you know, that's just because uh, we've got a committed news crew here uh, that, you know, works day and night to keep the news up to date for you, the listener. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, unironically, people have no idea how much time I have to spend on fucking Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it's way too much time. Like, They're, genuinely. it's too Nobody much. should have to be on Twitter at all, frankly. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, before we get into it, did you see, did you hear Wizards of the Coast sent the Pinkertons to a YouTuber's yeah. house? I you know saw what? that. I, read I have the many thing. questions. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, they just, it, for one, it was a fake story. Also... Uh, advice to anyone who sees the Pinkertons show up at their door, ask for a warrant. They'll never have one. Well, because that's the thing that I don't <laughs> understand about this story is they're like, the Pinkertons showed up at some guy's house. I'm like, why do you open the door? They're yeah. not cops. Be like, oh, you stole this thing. We're going to get it. No. Yeah, you're I just have, some guys. I have defeated you with a deadbolt. Incredible. <laughs> like, I don't yeah. do you, Oh, these guys show up without a warrant. You just open the door. Like, what do you? What are you fucking stupid? Like, I I just don't get because it's like there's just a word of the Pinkertons. You have to listen to us. Be like, no, <laughs> like because again, they're not cops. They have no authority whatsoever. No, what are you gonna literally do? just fire guys. on unarmed picketers. <laughs> yeah, because I know the story is that he's like he's re- like the person I guess received stolen magic cards or some shit. But it'd just be like, oh wow, that's a that's a wild story. Uh, you should go talk to someone who cares. Slam yeah. door. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, and as long as you're tuned into the show already to get hot tips on how to deal with not cops. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's work- other ways you could deal with the Pinkertons, but the, I'm not going to say them on a recording. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But we do have a whole show full of things we are going to say on recording. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. My name is John. I'm Dan. <laughs> and I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported labor show, so thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. It really does go a long way. Hop in the Discord if you're not in there already. If you're a patron and you don't have stickers yet, just message us on Patreon and we'll get them to you. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think it will help. Yeah, and just as another quick note, we are starting a little reading group. This is going to be the first session. It's going to be on Saturday the 29th at 1 p.m. Eastern in the Discord. So if you want to join that, uh, jump in the Discord, 
they're going to be reading Organizing Methods in the Steel Industry. It's just like a pamphlet to start off the whole thing. And, you know, you can come discuss labor organizing theory and also help decide what the next text that the reading group is going to go on with afterwards. So, yeah, jump in the Discord. But for our first story this week, we're going to follow up on uh, what is, for me, local news uh, that we covered a couple of weeks ago, which is the strike at the Rhode Island School of Design, or as it is uh, more commonly known, RISD, by the custodians, groundkeepers, and movers there who are unionized with the Teamsters. So these workers had been or- had been bargaining with the school for months just trying to get a living wage and, you know, been stonewalled by the school who literally called their demands, quote, uh, that, well, they said that their demands were, would not be quote, fiscally responsible end quote to meet. Uh, well, two weeks after the start of the strike and suddenly it became slightly more fiscally responsible for some reason, uh, for them to be able to pay the workers. Uh, so, uh, this Past Monday, a week from when we're recording, on on April 17th, the workers signed unanimously a a new contract with RISD after their strike. And, you know, this comes after, again, weeks and weeks and weeks of the school being like, look, you guys keep saying you want $20 an hour, but we just can't pay that. It's not, of course, we can't afford it because the school's rich as hell. But it's it wouldn't be responsible, and literally coming out and and in negotiating meetings, shitting on their own students, because when the the you know Teamsters mentioned they you know they bring up well there's only sixty of you that's not that big of a strike and they're like well the students are also here supporting us, and one of their like I think their lead labor relations person for the school said quote students are only good at making signs end quote. That's yeah, I'm disgusting. sure the students loved that. I'm sure they really appreciated being demeaned by some dude in a suit who just steals money from people. Well, and they, they, uh, yeah, very predictably, they fed right off that. And I mean, just you can walk around downtown Providence for the last two weeks, and it's real hard to go to a light pole or a wall or anything that wasn't completely covered in posters and signs and all sorts of flyers and stuff that were made by these students at an art school. And a lot of them directly referencing this thing. It's like, Hey, look at all our signs. We are pretty good at making signs, huh? (laughs) (laughs) And so, and the students had been, you know, really, really vehemently supporting the workers out there on the picket line every day. And so now that has culminated two weeks later in the school being forced to cave to basically everything that the workers had been demanding. Um, so they just signed a six year deal, although it's, it's like five years from now cause it's retroactive to last year. And it starts the workers at a minimum of $20 an hour, which is exactly what the workers had been demanding. And then additionally provides further 14% raises over the life of the contract, which those are not huge individual year-on-year raises. They're only about a 2.5% per year increase. But again, that's on top of an immediate 33% raise for a lot of workers who are making $15 an hour right now, which that's that's an enormous win. 
And they also won back pay through October and secured additional longevity raises beyond the the standard model for veteran workers who have been with the school for decades, but whose wages have just topped out. Like I remember there was one worker who'd been there, I think for 18 years and was only making $18 an hour because it was just like, that's the maximum salary for the job, which is ridiculous. So the maximum salary previously is lower than the current minimum salary. Correct. That's a huge win. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Uh, and and yeah, and it, it. But one of the best parts about this, I just think, is like how much the attempted union busting completely fell flat and really backfired, because. With, I think, you know, Rizzi probably did think, yeah, well, the Teamsters will bring in some of their people to support them, and maybe there'll be some community, but it won't be that bad. There's only 60 workers. How big could the picket line be? <laughs> but every single day, there was hundreds of students out there supporting the workers, lots of other workers coming down, you know, other Teamsters from, from Boston and other parts of the region coming out, as well as other union workers who showed their support and students providing a ton with marching, chanting, playing music, and again, flyering the whole city. Um, the, the union specifically thanked the students for their support and actually invited several of them to attend the ratification vote on the new contract, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, that's so cool. And uh, Teamsters Local 251 representative Tony Suazo said, quote, the support that was given is unbelievable. We couldn't have reached the finish line without them, end quote. And these protests by the students who were apparently only good at making signs uh, actually had forced the school to cancel one of their most popular annual events, this big book fair that the school runs called RISD Unbound, because so many of the exhibitors pulled out of the event when they found out that the the, the workers were on strike and all the students were out there supporting them. And so... Uh, the staff at the school's museum also submitted an open letter to the administration demanding that they negotiate with striking workers. So there was support coming from everywhere that RISD clearly did not expect. They really and should also rename that convention because b- books are generally bound. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's kind of an ironic thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But and 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 students like even talk to you know local press about why they were supporting the workers. And since there's no actual, there really isn't much good local press here. The local press includes press from Boston. So uh, the Boston Globe had interviewed some workers out at the picket line, and they talked to one student who was out there helping. And and this student, August Ostro, who's a sophomore at RISD, told them, quote, this isn't the easiest place to be a custodian. It's an art school, so we make a big mess. I would imagine it's going to affect our tuition prices, but they need to be paid what they deserve, end quote. Which That's I appreciate solidarity. the solidarity. I will say, if you're going to a school that makes that charges you eighty thousand dollars a year for tuition, and they tell you they're raising your tuition because they are paying this, the custodians twenty dollars an hour instead of fifteen dollars an hour. That's a lie. They are lying to you about why they're raising your tuition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this rocks. Love to see another Teamsters win. They got exactly the demands they were fighting for. And now these workers are going to have a much brighter future of being able to finally overcome these ridiculously low wage caps that they were hitting and actually be able to earn a real living wage. Hell yeah. 
Well, to continue with our university coverage, we're going to be following up on the University of Michigan grad student strike, the GEO Union. Uh, we originally reported this on the episode that we did with Subversive History. Well, a state judge in Michigan ruled on the graduate student striking and basically said, yeah, it is against the contract and it is an illegal strike. The students also continued to not really care. Uh, I mean, <laughs> so the uh, so the geo students are kind of taking a uh, play from what is very often used by uh, companies to actually be anti-union, but uh, actually kind of exploiting the legal process of drawing out this sort of uh, ruling by a judge because it's not official until the ju- until the final appeals are done, and so the geo union is actually appealing this to keep it you know kind of wrapped up so that they are not actually illegally striking until it all comes down we actually have a quote from amir fleischman a chair of the contracts committee and of geo uh, who said quote we will appeal the administrative law judge's recommendate recommended decision to the entire commission until which time the order is not final we hope that merck which is basically the NLRB, but for Michigan, recognizes that no law or policy can restrict a person's fundamental right to strike. Furthermore, no no court can decide to suspend our strike as the decision to strike or not is up to the rank and file members of our union, end quote. And I mean, that's just true. That's just good, like union democracy there saying, you know, you can't really blame us or or anything you can't even really do anything this is a fundamental right of workers these are these workers decided to go on strike they are allowed to go on strike fuck your stupid you know fake laws yeah i mean basically saying that like even if the court order is finalized it's still up to the workers whether they want to strike or not they can still strike you know knowing they're in violation of the law if that's what they decide to do yeah yeah i i think there's this misconception by some people but mostly what the like legal system would like you to think which is that it's like well the judge ruled something's illegal so you can't do it and it's like well that's not that's not that's not how the law works it doesn't create a force field preventing Mm -hmm. the, the workers from striking but what it does potentially you know mean as we saw with the teacher strikes in massachusetts and i think some other states where where this a similar situation has happened there is always the possibility that they could be fined if it's considered an illegal strike. And also, of course, if it, Michigan considering it the, or the university considering it a violation of contract can, you know, void the contract and things like that. But but ultimately, the, the key there, though, is that it's like, yeah, you have these angles that they can come after the union. But ultimately, as they said, it's like when it comes down to what the strike is fundamentally about, the workers' ability to control their own labor they're the ones who decide when it stops. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the administration, though, continues to cry about the strike, saying that they are disrupting learning at a key point in time, just before finals. But at the same time, they refuse to meet the needs of the graduate workers, which is the actual reason for the strike. So uh, obviously, crocodile tears from the administration, as usual. Uh, Two days later, because that was on the 17th, on the 19th, 
the graduate students occupied the Rockham Auditorium, calling for the university to stop stewing, stop suing them, and to pay a living wage. In retaliation, the university announced that they would be withholding the pay from the graduate students and calling the pol- and then they called the police on the picketing workers. The union managed to unarrest two people by surrounding the police and demanding that those those workers be released or those picketers be released. At the same time, uh, well, I mean, actually, before I move on from that, that's cool as hell. Unarresting mm-hmm. people, objectively very cool. Uh, but at the same time, some of the workers confronted university president Santa Ono, who was while who was out to eat, and uh, they he went and hid in like a private dining room. But you know you can't stay in there forever. When he finally left the meal and tried to escape, the workers surrounded the vehicle that he was trying to escape in, shouting, "What do we want? Our paychecks now!" Uh, because they had, you know, withheld the paychecks. The car that the uh, president was in continued to try to, like, push the students into the road by, like, inching little bits, like, you know, into the road, putting people in danger, and also a police officer assaulted a worker during this protest. Uh, So, you know, obviously the university is not being shy about the amount of repression that they're handing down on this. Well, one of the things that I do think is always so interesting about, and and I feel like this is shown so starkly, specifically in academic strikes. Like we saw this with the reaction of some of like the U, the UC officials during the UC strike, which is it reveals, I the actual feelings that uh, liberals have about dissent and conflict, which is that they believe primarily that the purpose of the state is to prevent them from being inconvenienced in any way. And that like, there's all this talk about, they support progressive values and diversity and all this stuff. But when it comes down to it, the second they get inconvenienced and the second they're faced with the consequences of their own actions by the people whose lives it is affecting. Suddenly it's like, oh, well, you've, you've crossed the line from acceptable dissent, which is you go over here in the free speech zone where it doesn't inconvenience me, and now you're, you're being militant and, and unreasonable, and I must call the constabulary to unleash tremendous violence upon you for having made me uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, paper tigers, right? I mean— uh, but I guess on top of that, one statement made a kind of in relation to that by Dr. Alejo Stark, a graduate worker at the University of Michigan, in regards to campus safety and the repression that they have experienced uh, and also the living wage that the workers are fighting for, said, quote, This is what they've been saying all along. The university prioritizes spending over $32 million on policing alone, not to mention administrators' bonuses, instead of paying graduate graduate workers a living wage and paying their fair share to fund an unarmed, non-police emergency response program. Coincidentally, $32 million is also what it would cost the university to pay graduate workers a living wage. This incident illustrates the role that campus cops play in protecting the powerful and the wealthy, not the workers, end quote. And I, I think that that, uh, I, I, I like the way that 
it really draws the numbers together there by saying, you know, we could just get rid of the cops and you could just give all that money to us. It's also a really salient point that the cops are absolutely not there to protect the workers or the students or the staff or the faculty. They're there to protect the administration's investment in the mm-hmm. university. And that's it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love how militant these workers have been. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that there are some sectors that would call the level of some of their tactics adventurist, uh, purely because it's outside of the normal contract bounds. Uh, I disagree. (laughs) I think that uh, this is the sort of thing you have to do to make your point, to get your point across a lot of times, Mm -hmm. because a big part of the NLRA's purpose was to put the worker protest into a box. It basically that same free speech zone that I was talking about, where it's like, this is where you do your labor protest. No more of these sit down strikes that are incredibly effective at shutting down uh, all of our productive forces. No more of these sympathy or solidarity strikes that actually, you know, amplify an individual strike like 10, 20 times. No, no, no. You go and you can have your arguments outside of contract time and that's it. And, and, you know, these folks are just like, no, we have real problems now. They are affecting our lives and we need to deal with them. And if that means that we are striking outside of the contract, well, so fucking be it. Well, and also they are, they're presenting a unified front on this. It's not like it's just a couple people in the union who are out there doing these confrontations or, or like kind of doing that what would maybe be considered like adventurism. This is a unified plan mm-hmm. to get the demands met that they need met. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So all solidarity with these geo workers in the face of the repression from the Michigan administration. Absolutely. And we also have a lot of solidarity with Trader Joe's workers who have been attempting to organize uh, for quite a while all across the country. And we did unfortunately receive some news Thursday evening, April the 20th, when Trader Joe's United announced on Twitter that the election at the Essex Crossing location in New York City was unfortunately not successful by a tie vote of 76 to 76. Even when they beat the workers, they have to draw them out to a tie and win on weird casino rules as if union organizing is a blackjack table. This yeah, is the f- the, the, just really, this is one of those things that Amali's just like, there's so many parts of US labor law you can point to that it's like, look, see how this is weighted towards the bosses, but it's just like, hey, look, the house wins in a tie. It's the same rule as in the casino. <laughs> As in labor law. I mean, it's so disgusting, and, and it's, it's it's really blatant when, yeah, when you just hand ties to the employer. So this is now the fourth attempt to unionize a Trader Joe's in New York City that has either been unsuccessful or was crushed by the store being closed in the case of their uh, wine and spirits store, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... In their statement, we did hear from the store's organizing committee who said, quote, the company's massive NYC stores are a challenge and a corporate union busting is a beast, but we will not stop fighting for each other and for the working conditions we deserve, end quote. Another excerpt reads, quote, the odds are stacked against us, but those on top will throw a lot of money and time to keep it that way. But every single time a worker, and in this case, nearly 200 of us, stand up and courageously and proudly fight back against this reality, the working class class makes huge strides end quote yeah i mean yeah (laughs) and you know this sucks i mean i really feel for the folks at this store like to not only lose but to lose in a tie like they to know that you're like one vote off that 
That's really that's that's really fucking tough. Like I I don't have like a way, I don't really know how you soften the blow on that one. Other than that, I will say you're only one vote off. So like yeah. as much as that hurts, as much as that sucks, especially the fact that this store can't try again for another year. Mm-hmm. But that's even though we've seen a couple of losses in New York, they're getting closer every time. Yep. So. Yeah, getting, I mean, that, maybe, especially based on the op, the kind of semi-optimistic uh, notion from this quote, I would almost think that they are taking it as a, okay, we've got a year to organize and come back. Yeah, and this is also, though, emphasized that, you know, where you, you got to put this store and also plenty of others. You got to put Trader Joe's on that same long, long list of companies that put forward that, we're so we're the hip company. We're very friendly. We call our staff partners, or you know, whatever the mm-hmm. bullshit that Starbucks does. It, look, we we're not like those other companies that exploit their workers. It's like no, you're this you're, you're a capitalist enterprise, just like the rest of them. And you know, Trader Joe's has been unleashing union busting at these stores, just like Starbucks, just like Amazon, just like Apple, just like so many places we talk about here. I mean, even uh, there was a story in the L.A. Times talking about these drives for the second half of this story. Uh, and in it, they mentioned that there are 56 open ULP charges against Trader Joe's for union busting. And last month, they were forced to rehire a worker at a store in Houston who was illegally fired for organizing. So, yeah, Trader Joe's, again, for the umpteenth example, there's no such thing as a progressive capitalist enterprise. Yeah, well, and maybe based on some of these ULPs, if uh, they are in that particular location over in New York, I think that you know, especially because it was a tie, there's a sm- there's a slightly larger chance of a bargaining order. But you know, I don't want to count on that. Yeah. Obviously, yeah, I think I think that's unlikely because Starbucks has gotten a couple of those, and but they've been largely based on the whole like pattern of massive union busting where I don't, while we know there is similar union busting going on at Trader Joe's, I don't think in the legal arena that has been established yet. So I would not expect a ruling like that here. Well, it'd be interesting to see. Uh, I mean, the union activity at Trader Joe's is absolutely not stopped in any case. We did also see on that very same Thursday, a few hours later, the union announced that they had won an election at the College Avenue store in Oakland, which voted 73 to 53 in favor of joining the new independent union movement. We heard from Dominique Bernardo, an 18-year veteran at the Oakland store, who told the LA Times, quote, this union campaign has not only been the most fun I've had at my workplace in years. It has also been the most meaningful and connective for many of us. I am incredibly proud to be part of this courageous crew, end quote. And I love that quote in particular because we talk a lot about how union organizing is effective, it's worthwhile, it, it can build you know power that you can use for other things, it, it's tactically advantageous, but also it's really fun. It's fun yeah. to get in touch with your fellow workers and talk about shit that you have in common or that you'd like to see change that's different. I mean, you already do it when you just sit around and bitch with each other. I know I do. So, (laughs) I mean, also sometimes when you get to like call management on their bullshit and they have to like slink away to their office, that feels really good. Yeah. Well, and and I mean, and your victories aren't like abstract, like they're, immediate and material like Mm -hmm. when you get you know contract wins and even before you get a contract when you force the company to give workers 
improvements in order in as part of their union busting drive. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so this this these two elections bring the Trader Joe's United campaign to four to two in elections. You might see some places listing it as three and two and not counting the election in Louisville because that's been challenged by Trader Joe's. I am counting the uh, victory in Louisville because that challenge, no matter how it's ruled on, it was clearly frivolous. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we've now got successfully uh, recognized unions at the first store in Hadley, Massachusetts, store in Minneapolis, the store in Louisville that's being challenged, and now the store in Oakland with the two losses both coming in New York City. So, I mean, I think that does also point to how important I think Trader Joe's views the New York City market, like that they're clearly dumping a big part of their union-busting resources into the New York region. So, and I know there are other stores that already have union drive, you know, in play. I mean, we talked about the worker who was fired for organizing in Houston. So like the, the fact that they've already got these, these four stores unionized, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of these in the future. Yeah, I'm definitely hoping so. They've really presented a lot of really strong energy, but, uh, speaking of a strong energy, how about a, uh, like a historic voter turnout and uh, also landslide strike authorization. Oh, I love that. In everybody's favorite industry, right? (laughs) The longshoremen. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) No, folks. So, you know, we we had a story about uh, labor conditions in the movies last week, and, you know, we decided to stick with Tinseltown for another story this week. Where on Monday evening, April 17th, members of the Writers Guild of America voted 98% in favor of going on strike. And that's not 98% with like a couple hundred people voting. That's 98% with the highest turnout in union history with over 9,000 of the 11,500 members of the guild turning out to vote. And fewer than 200 of those 9,000 voting against authorizing the strike. That's incredible. That's like 80% turnout, something like that. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah, I think it was like just a tick under. I think it's like 79 or something. But wow. yeah. And so this is a huge deal because uh, I think as folks can immediately get, if you don't have a script, you can't make most shows. Uh, not every show. I mean, you know, you've still got uh, HGTV and, and all the reality yeah, shit. Yeah, Survivor. But like, <laughs> yeah, all the shows that are good, you need a script for. So, uh, and I'm making everybody who likes reality TV who listens to this very mad. But You I can stay mad. <laughs> 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 um, so this strike authorization vote comes two weeks ahead of what is essentially the deadline. Because on May 1st, the Writers Guild contract will expire. And if they don't have a new deal, the writers have said, we are hitting the picket lines. So some of our listeners... Uh, and I'm definitely dating myself here, will may remember the last major uh, writer strike back in 2007, which when I looked this up, I was like, fuck, that was back in 2007? I thought that was more recent than that. <laughs> I mean, I, I heard about high it, but I was during the last writer's strike. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I definitely heard about it, but I don't really remember it necessarily. Uh, I was in college, so, and I, like, I remember it largely because it was like, uh, I think it was because this was during Lost, and I was 
one of the people watching lost and i was like oh man this is getting delayed because of the writer's strike and also all of the terrible bullshit that the like late late night talk shows were trying to do to stay afloat without any writers and how terrible that all was is that why lost ended up being a really bad show uh no uh, there's a lot i think there's a lot more uh (laughs) They, started, they started that show not knowing what they were going to fucking do with it. <laughs> but yeah, so this is one of the interesting things about, you know, organizing unions within Hollywood because when you look at the industry, you're like, oh, this is actually, there is some monopolization in the big studios, but there's so many little firms all around the Hollywood industry. You'd be like, oh, this should be, must be really fragmented bargaining, but it's, Not because all of the major studios are organized into a trade group called the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers, the AMPTP. And kind of like how the rail carriers have a trade uh, alliance where they have one big rail negotiation, uh, but for Hollywood instead of that. So the WGA is is, has one contract negotiation with the AMPTP for the whole kit and caboodle for all the writers. And while the contract has been going on, profits for the members of the AMPTP have gone through the roof. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can, and we could see the effects of that because, for instance, the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, which the existence of that as one company tells you about the level of consolidation going on in Hollywood, uh, their CEO, David Zaslav, had a compensation package last year of a quarter billion dollars. At, while at the same time, as reported by Alex Press for Jacobin, for who wrote a really good article on this, which was a, one of the bigger sources for it, um, the average writer compensation has decreased nearly 25% in the last 10 years when you adjust it for inflation. That's uh, insane. A no quarter sh- billion dollars yeah. is is such a deranged amount of money. I mean, you think about like famously wealthy people, like the Sultan of Brunei, who has thirty billion dollars. To think that you could get that by working sixty years and making a quarter bill in payment and a quarter bill in bonuses is just that's there's no job that should pay that amount of money out ever. <laughs> Yeah, while all the people who are generating those profits see their wages decrease mm-hmm. over the last decade. And in fact, at this point, as an a- in aggregate, we, you can see that when you look at the numbers because half of all the writers in the WGA are only making the contracts minimum, which is a huge increase over the last decade. I believe the numbers were in the prior decade, only about a third of writers were down at the minimum. So we have more and more writers getting stuck at the minimum wage on that contract. All while last year, Hollywood Studios made over $20 billion in profits. So a big part of this, or from the, like, the legalistic side, basically how the studios have been able to manipulate this and, and screw over the writers, has been the shift to streaming. We talked about this a bit when we discussed the run-up to the potential and then a, like didn't happen, IATSE strike, uh, I guess a couple of years ago now. <laughs> Was it? And, it wasn't last year? Uh, I don't know. Time is a flat circle. Um, okay. But... So by using the emergence of streaming as a, quote, new industry, 
film companies were able to get around long-established rules for traditional media production and do the same thing they always do when they do the, get, get these sorts of loopholes, screw over the workers involved. Um, and as, as was laid out in this Jacobin piece, streaming companies have largely really focused on using what are called mini rooms for their writing staff, which is basically just like a industry-specific way of saying intentional short staffing. Mm-hmm. Basically being like, well, you know how all of these traditional TV shows have like half a dozen writers in their writer's room? What if we disrupted the industry by being innovators and only having three writers? <laughs> <laughs> and also like, there's definitely not a reason why six right. to 12 writers is the standard for a long running <laughs> serial TV show. There's no, that was just, that's just the, the, the width of the King's thumb was an <laughs> inch back in the day. And that's where that came from too. <laughs> right. And so like, if you want to know, like part of the reason, probably not the whole reason, but part of the reason why so much of the infinite amount of content that is now available on streaming services is mediocre garbage. <laughs> uh, perhaps the fact that those streaming services have done everything in their power to not pay workers or hire enough workers. And weirdly, that makes the product suffer. Uh, but so yeah, you have these streaming companies doing everything they can to minimize labor costs. And that's just screwing over these writers. And one of the other problems is that the way that the writers are traditionally paid is by the episode. And many streaming series have moved to production models that have each season only have 12, 8, or even sometimes only 6 episodes, almost getting into the like British television style of incredibly mm -hmm. short seasons, compared to, say, a traditional 26-episode, like, half-year season for a network TV show. So that's, a, like, an enormous difference. And so the understaffing of, of writers' rooms and then these short streaming seasons has turned writing basically into a gig job for a lot of these writers. And so because of that, in identifying their demands for their new contracts, the workers have specifically focused on addressing the inequity between traditional writing work and, you know, like new industry or streaming work. They are demanding that residuals between the two realms of content production or uh, be, which I, I hate that phrase, but that's, it's so hard to identify stuff by platform now because you have stuff that's streaming that's also on TV or mm -hmm. that's also in theaters. So anyways, uh, workers are demanding that residuals be equalized between the two types of media production, reducing or ending the use of understaffed mini rooms, adding contract minimums to streaming comedy shows, which I guess don't have them right now, which that's wild. Yeah, There's like, crazy. oh, it's a comedy show, so it should be cheaper. Like, why? <laughs> Like, I don't know. Have you talked to most people? I think it's pretty hard to be consistently funny. So, like, uh, I certainly can't be. Uh, and they're also, you know, pushing to, of course, get higher base wages and better benefit contributions from the company, you know, what you expect from your standard bread and butter demands. And in negotiations between the WGA and the AMPTP, the workers say that the production companies are fighting tooth and nail to, to keep those loopholes that streaming work has because of how profitable it's, it's been for them because of how exploitative it is. Uh, they said in an email to their members, quote, 
In short, the studios have shown no sign that they intend to address the problems our members are determined to fix. Over the past decade, while our employers have increased their profits by tens of billions, they have embraced business practices that have slashed our compensation and residuals and undermined our working conditions, end quote. And so now we're kind of on a collision course here with the workers coming out very strong with that record turnout, nearly unanimous strike vote. And it's very clear that it's like, they're not bluffing. Like if, mm-hmm. if the studios don't come in and make some movement on their demands, they will strike. And the studios seem to be preparing for a strike. Uh, they're, they've begun stockpiling scripts, which is a, just an interesting concept to me. I'm just imagining like the Indiana Jones warehouse from right at the end of Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark, but it's just crates full of scripts. Get me a rom-com from the bin. <laughs> yeah. Um, and many of many of the companies are also preparing to lean on reality TV or so-called unscripted content, as some networks did during the 2007 strike to try and outlast the workers. But as I kind of referenced at the beginning of this story, like anybody who was watching TV then remembers that that attempt did not work and TV quality was really bad. Yeah. Like, um, and it's specifically TV that I'm focused on here purely because because of how long it takes to produce movies. Uh, barring some uh, uh, basically unimaginably long strike by the writers of months and months and months or a year, we're not likely to see the impact on the film industry until further out. So it'll be TV where you start to see the quality take a huge nosedive first, Uh, starting with like late night talk shows, the wasteland of reality TV. I would, I've seen SNL cited as an example, but frankly, I don't know how you'd tell the difference. Um, so, and there's no guarantee the strike's going to happen. Uh, there's plenty of room for the studios to just move on these demands. Again, they made $20 billion last year. I think they could afford to make $15 billion. (laughs) And still be doing pretty great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's definitely a possibility that we won't get a strike and instead we'll get a last-minute deal that happened back in 2017 during previous negotiations. So that's that's still definitely a possibility. But the record turnout and clear unity among the writers in the WGA is a strong indication that if either side blinks first, it's not going to be the union. Hell Yeah. I mean, like, I, I'm looking forward to uh, some shitty TV that I hear people complain about on social media because I actually end up not watching a lot of television programs these days. But uh, I guess in other huge strikes uh, that, I guess, in this case did happen, uh, over 150,000 government workers in Canada struck on Wednesday, April 19th, to demand wages that they can actually live on. This is absolute. I, I did not miss say that number. 150,000 workers. The workers organized under the Public Service Alliance of Canada. They represent workers across a wide swath of government departments, including tax preparers, the passport office, inspectors at Canadian ports, and many other vital services that keep the country functioning. Nearly a third of these workers, about 47,000 uh, as reported by the CBC, are classified as essential employees and were thus required to continue to report to work even though their union was on strike. 
despite this legal restriction imposed on these workers due to the critical nature of their labor, the government refused to pay them a corresponding essential wage. Most of these workers make between $15 and $25 an hour in U.S. currency. The CRA, the union representing tax workers, is asking for a raise of 22% over the three-year contract, while the broader PSAC is asking for 14%, but the government has refused, stubbornly insisting that the the most they can offer is 3% per year which would leave the lowest paid Canadian government workers making only $16 by 2026. And after years of rampant inflation, these workers would basically be making less at the end of their contracts than they were at the beginning. So obviously worth a 150,000 person strike. Yeah. I, I, this is the, this is one of those things. I, I feel like the strikes in the UK and and this strike and that's one of the things I think is so important, about, just about publicizing news about these strikes is because this is one of those few places I think where we have the opportunity to learn what people are paid and be shocked at how fucking low it is. Because yeah, this it's is the thing, so low. Like this, it's like with the junior doctors in the UK, where they're like, "Oh yeah, they make like seventeen dollars an hour." They <laughs> I'm make just blowing my mind yeah they make so few beans per hour (laughs) yeah and and these workers who make the federal government of canada function can uh, we wait hold on can we do one about like maple syrup (laughs) per hour but with with these workers (laughs) oh i wonder if the workers at canada's maple syrup reserve were part of this strike which is a real thing maybe yeah Yeah, they they have strategic (laughs) maple syrup reserves (laughs) yeah they do. Yeah, they store it in the CN Tower. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, yeah, but they yeah, store it so... in Brian Mulrooney's hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an, an infinite supply. You keep ringing it out; it just keeps coming. But um, gross. <laughs> <laughs> so, in addition to, of course, fighting for better wages. The PSAC is fighting for limitations on contract work to prevent the government from using contract labor to get around paying proper union wages, which we see that all over the place. That's that's another thing we've also it's another parallel with the UK. That's another thing that we've seen as a big demand from the strikes there. They're also demanding improved policies to fight racism in the workplace and allowances for continued remote work. And that, in particular, has been a sticking point, with the Canadian government adamantly refusing to consider that maybe workers in the tax office who process numbers and electronic files all day don't need to be in a cubicle being constantly glared at by a manager for no reason. Also, maybe they can do the math on their wages. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, that too. <laughs> Maybe they're perfectly yeah, I mean, capable with numbers. Yeah. <laughs> that is one of those things I will say. Like, it seems like a big strategic blunder to infuriate the people who process your source of income. That's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now all the MMT people are just screaming, that's not where the money comes from. Anyways. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> This is this is another thing though that I think is really important. The 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 fact that it's the Canadian government that is so adamant about the return to office because we expect that from private employers because you know there's so many parts of capitalist ideology that require it. Also, of course, there's all the the co- commercial real estate people who are just constantly screeching about how 
remote work is the devil because it's lowered commercial real estate prices. But there's no real, there's no material reason for the Canadian government to demand a return to the office. It's not as if they're paying leases on the publicly owned buildings. They just own them. Uh, So there's no economic imperative. But because of the, again, the class nature of the state, because the state is the capitalist state, it structurally is capitalist. It is run by the capitalists for the capitalists. Therefore, the people at the top governing levels have the same ideological reaction to remote work and are just as obsessed with controlling workers' lives. And so these negotiations that these workers have been fighting for on these issues have been going on for nearly two years before this strike last week. So uh, the government (laughs) has attacked the demands of the workers for a living wage, saying, quote, Even though there is a competitive deal on the table, the PSAC continues to insist on demands that are unaffordable and would severely impact the government's ability to deliver services to Canadians. This fucking, like, run the government like a business thing is just, like, uh, so stupid. When people say run it like a business... (laughs) yeah, 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 I mean, competitive wages from a government office? Go fuck yourself. (laughs) Are you competing with, like, the U.S. government? Who are you competing with? It's also so yeah. funny because they are running it like a business, which is to say they're lying through their fucking teeth. That's we right. know that it would not severely impact the government's ability to do anything because mm-hmm. the people who do all the things the government does are the ones telling us to do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous, this idea that, well, if we pay these workers $20 an hour instead of $15 an hour, how will we be able to afford the Mounties? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> for, which, I mean, first off would be good because then they could stop harassing indigenous people. But yeah, like, I just want to go back to that, re- that quote from the University of Michigan where it's just like, if you look at this number of the RCMP <laughs> and the number that the workers are demanding, they're eerily similar. <laughs> just get rid of one. We're, we're going right, to take the it- brims off all the RCMP hats and turn them into <laughs> poutine bowls. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But I, in addition to all of that, it's also, of course, nonsense because the government can just print more money. <laughs> they, they, the, the government of Canada, as a sovereign government, can never run out of money. That's not a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so while I don't, well, MMT is not a really, it's not a Marxist position, that part of it, they are correct. Well, there are, there are some governments that could run out of money, like if they rely on yes. De La Rue in Britain, for instance, to order their money from, which 140 countries do, but Canada is not one of them. I had to look this up recently. <laughs> they print their own money just like the U.S. does. Right. So... So it is, and but in addition to all of this, all of these reasons why it's nonsense to say that we can't increase the wages without cutting services, they're also saying this while Canada has been running record budget surpluses. Yeah. Canada's <laughs> doing billions. pretty good, guys. It's not publicly <laughs> traded, but if it was, it would be a good investment. <laughs> yeah, like it's billions of dollars every month. For the last year, the country can easily afford to pay the workers a living wage. It just refuses to out of this capitalist ideological imperative to discipline labor, even when it's not financially necessary. Mm -hmm. And even 
Prime Minister Trudeau went after the workers trying to drive a wedge between them and the broader Canadian public, saying, quote, I know that Canadians will not be terribly patient if it continues too long. And they'll stop oh. saying sorry. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau, I know that Canadian public workers will not be too patient if this continues for too long. And I'm pretty sure they're prepared to win that game of chicken. So Hell yeah. <laughs> That's right. So. Yeah, there were 250 picket sites all across Canada with 150,000 out on the picket line. It actually was the largest strike at a single employer in Canadian history. So, yeah, I mean, this it, it slowed the processing of various license applications, tied up some border crossings, massively show, slowed shipments at ports because most of the inspectors who are required to make any of those shipments were not at the port that day. Mm. It's really emphasizing just the vital importance of the work that all these public employees do. So, uh, I mean, look, these are the folks that make all the, they make the system go. You, you can't, you can't run the whole, you know, class dominance of the workers. If the bureaucratic state that you made to monitor that doesn't have people working at it. So, uh, I, I, I mean, yeah, Canada's, like ruling class is just going to have to, you know, part with a couple of those dozens of billions of dollars in surpluses <laughs> they've been making. So, yeah, reach into that trench coat that you use to cover up three mining companies that constitute right. your economy and pull out the money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's I I hope that they get their demands met really soon or I also hope that maybe they decide that a, another huge strike is necessary for getting their stuff but I guess uh, when we talk about organizing workers we can also I mean I guess this next one's almost a follow-up in a certain sense but it is a new story uh, we're gonna be talking about something that we talked about just a couple weeks ago where there was the first Barnes and Noble, uh, union announced over at the Rutgers location. Uh, well, now there's a second location jumping on board. This week on the 18th, which was last Tuesday, the second store, this one in Hadley, Massachusetts, sent a letter to their bosses announcing that they had formed their union, saying, quote, we believe that unionizing is the best course of action for us to take to ensure that our workers are cared for and prioritized in the ways that Barnes & Noble has so far consistently failed to do. We believe that with a more democratic voice in decision-making processes, we will be able to work more efficiently as a team and better serve our community, the union wrote. Uh, and, I mean, the reason I kind of emphasized Hadley, Massachusetts, was because uh, this was also the place where the Trader Joe's union began. So there is definitely a uh, a union push from that, that city or town. Is Hadley a city or is it a town? No, it's a, pretty, it's a relatively small town that just happens to, for some reason, have some real-ass organizers in it. Yeah, that rocks. Uh, I mean, there are... 18 workers at this Barnes & Noble that are working with UFCW Local 1459 to build their union, and they filed for their election with a supermajority of support, which we love to see. In a letter announcing their drive, workers said that they were moved to organize because of disrespect from management, low wages, inconsistent scheduling, and a lack of accessibility in the store. Access accessibility problems in a bookstore that is 
ridiculous. Like, I mean, accessibility problems anywhere is a problem. I mean, like, books are for everybody. Anyway, the workers are all. The workers also pointed out that Barnes and Noble has recently posted record profits, but has not. But that has not been reflected in their wages. They said, "Quote: Meanwhile, the majority of our staff are still underpaid and without benefits, even while many of us are working nearly or actually at full time hours." End quote. Which, to me, having worked in retail, is very reminiscent of people who do work full-time hours but are classified as part-time and they're just picking up shifts or whatever. And so, because of their quote-unquote part-time status, they just deny them benefits. Now, if this was successful, they would be the second of 600 locations around the country to form a union. And, uh... I, I really am optimistic about all of these retail locations, other, you know, grocery stores like Trader Joe's, uh, you know, serving places in general, forming up these unions that were called historically impossible to organize. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's 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 always interesting to me that Barnes & Noble has continued has, has been like the one company that emerged from like the 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 death of <laughs> of really just retail, like a lot of retail stores generally, mm-hmm. but the retail book like market entirely, like, you know, with borders completely falling apart, yeah. like because of Amazon. Borders but gone. I think that it's, yeah. it, it's been really interesting to see that it's like, there still is actually a market for, you know, going to be able to actually browse physical books uh, instead of having to order them off Amazon in a much more impersonal manner. And that's why I think it's so great that they're actually finally getting this union drive going. And it's really, I really want to know, like, what what is in the water in Hadley, Massachusetts? <laughs> like, or if it's just a crew of really a few dedicated folks that have, have been, you know, punching above their weight. They're so putting class consciousness in the water and making the freaking workers' unions. <laughs> That's right. We are going to counter the United States' absolutely absurd number of Hitler particles with these newly discovered Lenin particles. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So uh, another story this week, this is just a real quick one, but I thought it was worth including because of how much we've talked about the incredible Starbucks Workers United movement that has been, you know, inspirational for so many of the, the new unions that have popped up over the last year. And because this week, the union unveiled their economic proposals for their bargaining with the company. Previously, we discussed they unveiled their non-economic proposals, like all the the... The other additional stuff that is often like not included, but is in the whole bread and butter benefits, but are still incredibly important. So, but now they have announced their specific economic proposals to be basically the baseline for the contract negotiations at the 300 plus stores that the 10,000 ish workers that have been unionized will be negotiating around. And they've been working for months to develop this set of proposals and, and really to demonstrate very good faith on this national bargaining as the counterparts on the company's side have shown the absolute opposite of that, perhaps the worst faith ever shown in a union tribe that didn't involve actual physical violence um so besides the police repression yeah and, and so we're not gonna we're not gonna like run through all the details, but I just wanted to lay out the some of the key highlights of this so right off the top. 
a $20 an hour starting minimum wage for all workers at Starbucks with adjustments upwards for workers in areas with an especially high cost of living. Hell yeah. In addition to that, zero copay health care for all workers, both full and part-time, including gender-affirming health care. Hell yeah. Great. Really good. Guaranteed schedules so that workers can have a regular life. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. That's huge. Uh, just cause protection to prevent arbitrary firing, which seems particularly necessary in this case. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And of course, as with any uh, good union contract, a binding grievance procedure. So I have fallen out of my chair. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the, these proposals, you know, these are the sorts of things that I think to a lot of our listeners, it's like, well, of course, the company should pay for health care. Uh, people should be able to predict their schedules. But like, I feel these would be transformative for workers at Starbucks, especially things like the guaranteed schedules. Like we've talked about in the past, like how big of a difference that made for workers at like Burgerville in, uh, I think they're in Portland. In, um, and, you know, when they won the first fast food union contract, how big of a difference that was. So that plus a $20 minimum wage, plus the free health care. I mean, this is the sort of thing, when you talk about one of the things that unions do is they turn a job into a career. Because yeah. it, they get it to the point where you can actually live and have a life at that job. And that, to me, is really the essence of, of what these demands are hitting at. Yeah, I mean, the Burgerville comparison is huge. I mean, Mark, uh, workers, uh, listeners and workers, or listener workers, uh, might remember that the one of the big wins on their first contract at Burgerville was uh, schedules 30 days in advance. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is very similar to that and just fucking rocks. I, uh, as an aside, I was having a really hard time not li like laughing at Maru, whatever the fuck she was doing behind <laughs> you. I know, I'm sorry. I had to keep like looking away from your screen. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I I might not even cut this because that. <laughs> <You know. laughs> She's just like batting at the box. <laughs> yeah, it's a new box. She's excited about it. Uh, but speaking about being excited about things, uh, we have <laughs> another union drive that is at a allegedly progressive company, and uh, also. <laughs> They're failing right away, as is expected from any quote-unquote progressive company. Say the line, progressive company. <laughs> <laughs> Workers at the Burlington, Vermont location of Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream have announced that they have formed a union with all 37 workers at the location in favor. Hell a yeah. unanimous filing. <laughs> Rare, but amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh while uh, filing for their union election on the 17th, they also asked the company to sign fair election principles, which the company has so far refused to do. You know, as you know, I'm alluding to their already failing. Now, it is worth noting that though it is being reported in a lot of places that this is the first union at the company, back in 1998, maintenance workers at an ice cream plant unionized with the IBEW. The company at the time contested the union by trying to get them to include everybody in the plant. The challenge failed and the workers successfully won their union. So uh, I guess if history is anything to go on, 
they're probably not going to just hand these workers their union. Now, yeah. I just want to hop in because something that if if listeners have heard about this, which is, I mean, it got a little bit of buzz, uh, at least on labor Twitter for the day that it was announced. Folks may have seen that Ben and Jerry, you know, the founders, have, have come out as, like, in favor of the union and, like, supportive of their drive. But important to note, that is not the same thing as recognition because mm-hmm. I believe Ben and Jerry's is owned by Unilever. Um, wh- but I, I think it's, like, the the founders have, like, some creative control, but that, like, business decisions, I believe the company is owned. I should probably have looked this up. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unilever owns it, um, but they yeah. exercise creative control over the factory in Burlington. Right. So that, like, well, look, I, and I don't want to be coming in here to be like, so their support is fake. I mean, they, I think they do probably genuinely support the union, but it's important to remember if they can't actually make that happen, it doesn't really matter that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, it's it's Unilever who has that call, and they have not voluntarily recognized the union yet right well and to avoid anything i mean before because the i believe it was ben of ben and jerry actually visited the location the day of the announcement but they left before the announcement happened uh Mm. so you know i i don't know at least it wasn't a a captive audience meeting but still i i wouldn't put too much credence in a company actually recognizing a union even in a quote-unquote progressive company now the union is demanding things like a grievance procedure and resources to help deal with drug users who have uh used an overdose in the bathroom they aren't calling for police intervention but like available narcan and training on how to deal with situations involving drug use which is Mm -hmm. pretty cool um i mean it would be very much so you know like a safety issue making sure that these people have you know access to resources that can you know either lead them to safe consumption sites or other sorts of things like that um at least i'm i'm hoping that that is what would come to pass through this there uh, were not a ton of other details on what the workers were looking for in the resources that i was finding but i'm sure we'll hear about more as their uh union progresses the union is affiliated with Workers United and have named their union Scoopers United. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I guess I like it. They're they're kind of joining the ranks of Starbucks and them, you know, with the with joining Workers United, which means uh they're definitely going to win and uh also, I mean, they have the 37 of 37 voting, so Yeah, I mean, the fact that they have the unanimous support is one of the reasons why I do you know, obviously Unilever is not going to be inclined to recognize the union. Oh, I get it. Inclined, like a lever. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely thinking that. You're right. I, I am As the engineer, right? <laughs> on those levels, for sure. Um, but I feel like in these cases where you already know there's unanimous support, like I, I honestly feel like they'd almost be like cutting their own losses to just voluntarily recognize the union, mm-hmm. because like if you don't, you're really just incentivizing them to fight a lot harder when they do win at the bargaining table. But Dan, so. that sets a precedent for when the rest of them try to organize and they might not have that unanimous support, 
And so if they recognize this one, they've got to recognize them all, and therefore they will not be doing that. Ah, they've run into the Nordic country problem. Do you (laughs) give your workers some rights to keep them from asking for more, or do you do regular degular fascism? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, with Unilever's history, it's usually the fascist. We're going to go regular degular on this one. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we'll see. So shout outs to Scoopers United, which I love that name. (laughs) It's really badass. Going in and asking for a super scoop. <laughs> but speaking of a badass union drive, I know, John, you had, you'd thrown a, a story on here at the last minute today. Yeah, I just saw this uh, literally 15 minutes before um, I had to record my other show and I was out of time to do notes. So I thought I'd throw this in because it's really cool and everyone loves a video game union. So this video game union is Sega of America. We saw Sega. today. Sega. Such a great little sting. But uh, literally the day of recording, April 24th, workers at Sega of America's Irvine, California office have filed for a union election with the NLRB. This new union, Allied Employees Guild Improving Sega, also uh, acronymized to Aegis, is partnered with the Communications Workers of America, the CWA, and consists of a supermajority of 144 employees across Sega's QA, localization, live service, marketing, and product development departments, making Aegis the largest video game union in the United States, made up of workers across numerous departments. Which is pretty cool, because that's one thing we talk about a lot when we see video game unions is uh, a lot of times it'll just be like one department kind of deciding like uh, hey we, we were the lowest paid employees or maybe we're not seeing the same benefits as the other employees but to organize across the entire office of Sega of America like this gives you an unreal amount of bargaining power when you actually do get to negotiations yeah so, I don't know if it's quite considered wall to wall because that would also include like maintenance workers and such but it's right. pretty close yeah it's definitely like uh, interdepartmental or something like that right um, but yeah, we, we heard in the mission statement uh, that announced the Aegis Union, quote, Our workers and our audience deserve games made by people who make a living wage. In our quest to reclaim our collective power, we have built bridges with fellow workers from across our company in an effort to understand our shared issues and those that are unique to each department. You know, people should really just listen to that quote one more time because uh, the idea that you talk to fellow workers in other departments to find your common grievances and then come together to address them. That's a pretty important tactic for forming a strong union. Absolutely. And, you know, this comes on the heels of a year of organizing at Sega. According to Emma Geiger, who is a temp localization editor, the nature of remote work and siloed departments at the company made initial efforts difficult. So we heard from them, uh, quote, organizing started out with making friends, actually. You'd have a couple people on your team that you'd hang out with after work, and then you'd see somebody in the office who was maybe not on your team but worked in the same space, and you'd reach out. That sort of bridges a little bit of a gap. And I think that's like really, really critical is that like these things can often start with conversations, uh, just with other workers that you maybe wouldn't interact with on a day to day uh, basis who aren't in the same production vertical that you're in within the company. (laughs) You know what? You know, it's been going around lately. 
that little like Sega graphic or not the Sega that that little Sonic uh like graphic where Sonic explains how to form a union in your workplace. I wonder <laughs> if they created that. Oh, <laughs> I hope so. Uh, they seem like a pretty lively bunch. Yeah, I mean that video is going around on Twitter today because it's so perfect for this. I love that it's now Sonic the Union Hedgehog. Yeah, yeah. I love to. I love my little anthropomorphic blue boy who eats chili dogs to be a union product. That's uh, right. <laughs> union Actually, chili dogs, union video games. Unironically, hell yeah. Hell yeah. So we also heard from Tori Winkler, who is a senior community manager, who said that a mutual love of the games she and her colleagues work on facilitated the discussions and outreach needed to get different departments on board with their unionization efforts. She said, quote, through talking about games with people in the localization department or QA was really how I started to learn about the unionization process. She also said that that communication has paid off. It's not just fun and nice to talk to your coworkers. It also has real world benefits. We also heard from Winkler saying, quote, and even as we've been having discussions throughout this process, it's really helped to forge connections with people that I wouldn't have had an opportunity to talk to just in my day-to-day working environment. So again, an echo of what we've seen in multiple stories in this episode, unionizing can also just be fun. It can be fun to hang out with other people. Enriching the life of the people who are doing the organizing, talking to new people, experiencing new things, getting new perspectives, building power. Right. And making more money. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. right. And making more money. And both of the people who provided quotes, Winkler and Geiger, both said that they had not experienced any anti-union sentiments from management and are hopeful that Sega of America and its Japanese parent company will voluntarily recognize the union. I'm very glad to hear that you haven't experienced any anti-union sentiments from management, but I have to announce my healthy skepticism that they will voluntarily recognize your union <laughs> yeah i absolutely agree with that uh, i it's great to see that there's uh not blatant union busting happening just yet at the very least right well they have a super majority i so. i gotta say again i love when workers do this with the names because this is like my favorite one of my favorite things about the dartmouth grad union winning was because it was like graduate organized laborers of dartmouth so that they could be called gold yeah in this case we've got allied employees guild improving sega so that they could make it ages which is such a great name so you know badass. It, it is very ancient cool. mythical union <laughs> yeah <laughs> it is very cool i do think it's a little funny the way that they you, you have to kind of like worm the words around in order to make that acronym but i i still love I it i like it i think it's yeah. great yeah absolutely and also things that are great memes. that's right <laughs> we're here at the meme review everybody uh we'll open it up with a de share zone meme uh always a winner and this is uh, a skeleton vibing on like a little beanbag thing in the woods or like a rock and it says, if there are cops reading this, it's 420, bitch. Time to get high and release all drug offenders from prison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Correct this one went around last Thursday, and I thought about it while we were recording our General Strike episode. I'm like, ah, oh, there's no meme review. We're, we're recording our, <laughs> our episode on 420, but we have to wait for the next episode to, do, to put it in the meme review. <laughs> 
Oh, man. Yeah. So, and this next one is basically an alternative version of those uh, in this house, we believe, signs that you see on every <laughs> rich liberal that you know's uh, lawn. I think this is the second time we've had one of these in the meme review. I think this one is a little bit better. Yeah, this one's really yeah. great. <laughs> well, this one is also, this is not like a shitting on liberals one. This is just like a, this should be, this is a better version of that in a sincere way. Yeah. Uh, and so this one is, in the house of labor, we believe apathy isn't real. Every boss has a weak spot. Direct action gets the goods. Power concedes nothing without a demand, never has, never will. The arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. An injury to one is an injury to all. And solidarity forever for the union makes us strong. Hell yeah. That's a I, much better version. Couldn't agree yeah, more. Yeah, I, I really liked it. The The apathy isn't real one, I think, is it really makes you uh, kind of uh, think about, about it a little bit because it's like, you know, people love to say, oh, I don't care, I'm not political, but then, you know, as soon as their paycheck gets involved, I'm like, sorry, your paycheck's political, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then uh, this next one is a reference to uh, a great... Uh, firework that happened this past week <laughs> where uh i guess i'll just read it this is well who is it who's the um the guy dan you know actors so so that's this is uh giancarlo esposito in his uh iconic role of gus from breaking bad i believe this is the scene right before he gets blown up oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well actually i didn't realize that that's a that's even better because uh, the uh spo- i guess spoilers for a 15 year old television show. <laughs> yeah. the text on this one is watching elon throw a, a hundred times your lifetime co2 em- emissions at mars and miss <laughs> which yeah uh, i mean you know, the unscheduled that, that, uh, disassembly or whatever it was? Yeah, I was extremely unsurprised by that for a couple of reasons. One, I believe SpaceX recently fired a large portion of their engineers mm-hmm. <laughs> to save money, as Elon has been wont to do lately. But also, too, the design that they went for with this rocket is really similar to a lot of Soviet rockets. And... The Soviets had trouble having, like, a million smaller engines instead of a few huge ones, which is how, like, U.S. rocket design was uh, before the United States forgot how to make rockets. Um, (laughs) And the problem with that is is it's really tricky to balance all of those engines. And so if the Soviets were having a hard time with it 50 years ago, there's no fucking way Elon Musk's stupid company is going to be able to figure that out. So I wouldn't expect to see that thing succeed anytime soon. Yeah, I definitely agree. And uh, I guess speaking of of Soviet, we've got and and also Sega. Yeah, our next one is Sonic wearing uh the it's a new Shanka, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the with the uh, communist symbol on it, the red star with the hamsick and the the little uh, what is the the is it wheat? It's not wheat because those are like other leaves. I mean, it, the symbol is usually considered laurels, but on the Soviet laurels. seal, it is it is sheaves of wheat. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Sonic here is saying, remember, kids, every accusation a conservative makes is a secret confession every single time. Yeah. And I brought this one in because we say that on this show all the time. Yeah. Well, because it's true. It's, yeah. <laughs> Politics is 99% projection, 1% someone says something funny on accident. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I mean, look, how many of these, like, just bizarre, absolute horrific bigots who have been out here attacking, you know, trans people and gay people and call them groomers? And how many of it is just, I mean, like, it's every other day. It's like, oh, turns out that person's a sex offender. Mm-hmm. Like everyone, like there, it's well, because and it's everything the U.S. says about China. It's it's all of the reactionaries do this. It's ridiculous. It, it's literally something that quote unquote capitalists should easily be able to understand. Who is incentivized to say that somebody is doing something awful? The person who's doing that thing. Nobody mm-hmm. has more motivation to pin it on someone else than the guilty party. It's literally every time it's, I think you should leave. We're all trying to find the guy who did this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every single time. And so the last one is, is a picture of a cat reading, I believe, a math textbook. Yeah, looks like geometry. <laughs> And then it's captioned, me studying all these man-made horrors so they are no longer beyond my comprehension. <laughs> and that's and that's why we're here and why we uh, say you should uh, become a patron and you can study all of the great uh, labor history general strikes that we're covering or, you know, the history of uh, union ties to the mob and, you know, the realities of the situation. Or you could even... Jump in the Discord and join the reading group, which is happening again on Saturday oh. the 29th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. They're reading Organizing Methods in the Steel Industry by William Z. Foster. It is going to be a great start to what is hopefully a long-running reading group. And uh, I guess with me taking all of the steam out of the funniness of, of that meme, I'll, we'll wrap there. And uh, again... Uh, if you support us, we appreciate it. If you don't, it's the only way that we get money for doing this, and we really appreciate it. If you would support us, if you can't, you know, we understand. Jump in the Discord anyway and come hang out and join the reading group and uh, write us a review somewhere. Follow John on Twitter at Facebook Villain. Follow the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest. And solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Hey, hey. In the club, nothing matters when you got the heat up. And you feel in love with the back rub.